Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Marjorie Punnett. I'm Elizabeth Reese. This is Best to the Nest, the podcast that's all about creating strong, comfortable, beautiful nests that prepare us to fly. And today, I am so excited to talk about this book, Elizabeth, that we have both, we are both reading, we're both actually listening to it on Audible, which we are preferring to reading it, but I don't care how you read or listen to this book, What Happened to You, it's Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. And it's a book by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. And I am so excited to talk about this today. I think this is a really, really important book. It totally is. It's a must consume. And you talked about this a few weeks ago and uh, said, you have to read this. This book is so important because what it does is it reframes the question, what's wrong with you that we've been asking people for so long? What's wrong with you? Why are you like that? What is wrong with you? To what happened to you? And it is such an interesting way, I think, to look at yourself and to look at people in your life and then to even look at strangers, Marjorie. Like since I've been consuming this book, I've been seeing people on the street with just a more empathetic feeling. That's such, just, an, impo- that, that's such yeah. an important thing that you just said because I think not only if, – if we can in some way, especially in this time – find a way to be kinder and more empathetic to one another, that will be the secret to healing even coming out of COVID. Mm-hmm. But it, it's such a simple language change. And it really is. It's the title of the book. It's the overriding theme of the book of changing that 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 idea of what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And then it goes deeper into it. And Dr. Bruce Perry has known Oprah since the 90s. And what's really important about the work that he's done, he's a psychiatrist, but at the same time, he's also a neuroscientist. And so it's the connection between mental health and the actual physical brain that is so breathtakingly different. It's such a breathtakingly different point of view on how to heal. And why I think it's such an important book. It's such an important book if you're thinking about being a parent or if you are a parent, because it really talks quite extensively about trauma. And you could say trauma with a capital T or trauma with a a small T. And I don't Mm -hmm. mean to diminish that, but obviously there are, there's a range of trauma. And what's so extraordinary about this book is they talk about how even things that even things that may seem may have seemed small when you were you know when you think about oh what's happened to me in my life if they happened at certain points in your life they have even a bigger effect so we'll get into that a little bit more but it's really important this idea of trauma can be any range of things to when it happened to you in your life and how that affects you And so you and I had talked about this before we started the podcast, that we wanted to go through the book sort of chapter by chapter, and we'll sort of cover chapter one, chapters one through four today, and then we'll do five through 10, 
in the next episode that we do on this book because there's just so much to take in. It's extraordinary. Yeah, there really is. And I think if you have a chance, if you listen to this podcast and you haven't started the book and you want to start it and kind of be part of the conversation that way, I think it would be really helpful because when you start to consume this book, all you're going to want to do is talk about the book because (laughs) it is just so life changing. And, you know, I think what it is, is it's it, what I found so intriguing about it too, is that it brings up such a range of feelings for me because I feel on the one hand, like every interaction with my child is an opportunity. Right. And then I also feel on the other hand, like, man, what have I done already that has screwed things up? I mean, because you look at your children as just not just these little sponges, but as just every interaction with you is framing how they view the entire world. Right. And it's simultaneously an opportunity and a weight. And I'm trying to kind of figure out and like find the line of that as I move forward. Well, that leads um, us that leads us really beautifully into chapter one, making yeah. sense of the world. And this is where that sense of overwhelming and awesome responsibility sort of hits home because Oprah opens the book by talking about how the acorn contains the oak. And if you really think about the simplicity of what she's saying is that what that little seed, that little seed is going to become this big, powerful tree. And honestly, it can be a powerful tree that has a good place in the world or a Mm -hmm. bad place in the world, or it can be a tree that's sort of malformed. I mean, there are all sorts of things. But when you just think about and you look at your children, that there are these little acorns that have all of this potential, it is an awesome responsibility. But I would say to you, Elizabeth, I mean, my kids are going to be 30 and 28. I've never stopped loving or parenting them. I have made mistakes. But the beauty of what the book says, and it's why I think everybody who's thinking about being a parent or has young children, there's always opportunities for change and there's always opportunities for hope. And But what people need to take away from the book and what is important, this is why I think you feel this awesome responsibility, is we really can do the most damage to our children when they, between zero and two. I know. When I, when Gar was born, who's my firstborn, I had a, I was really stressed about the fact that I was probably not going to go back to work right away. Mm-hmm. And everybody makes their own decision. That's, and whatever decision you make within the context of your own family is your decision. My decision was to stay home for a little bit. What the doctor told me, and this, this really didn't, I just thought this was really important. He was lamenting the pressure. And mind you, this is 1991. Yeah. He was lamenting the pressure that women my age were under to go back to work. Yeah. Because he felt that that first year of life was so significant and was so important to how the child viewed the world. And what this comes back to is caregiving. Mm-hmm. And so you've made a different decision. Your children go to a lovely daycare center where they're cared for beautifully. So it's not about does the mother have to stay home or not. What it's about is making sure that whoever is interacting with your child is doing that effectively and lovingly and consistently. That's what a baby needs. And so I'm really hesitant. I don't want women to freak out because they go back to work or because they – because that's still our choice. And I think it's important if that's the choice your family's making for whatever reason – 
I believe in that choice, but you can't discount this idea that zero to two, really, really important. Is that sort of what overwhelmed you? Yeah, it it does overwhelm me. I think that part overwhelms me. And I think also the feeling that zero to two is also when you're really stressed out as a parent. It's very difficult, particularly with that first child, which is why you can see that first children have some issues. included because you really you really take on the anxiety of your parents yeah and you kind of joke like oh you know you can kind of joke around with your friends and obviously like we joke around about all sorts of things that like by the time you get to the third kid the third kid just raises themselves right because you've got the other ones and you're so much more laid back and there's all these memes about the things you do with the first child versus the second versus the third and so on and but in reality i mean why are why are so many firstborns similar? Why are there these traits in a firstborn? Well, you can really understand it when you start to look at the way that the brain develops from such a young age, where there's total attention, there's a lot of nervousness, there probably isn't as much consistency as you get in later times. I mean, I had a lot more postpartum anxiety with Bernie than with any other of my children, and I didn't recognize it until way later on. I didn't recognize it until she was over two and I had another baby and was like, wait a second, all those weird thoughts and feelings, those weren't normal. That kind of stuff really ends up impacting children. So that's where I just, I, I keep like right now, I'm just combing through the last like seven exhausted years of my life and going, holy buckets. But like, boy, that's a lot. (laughs) But no, but know that sort of what the doctor talks about and Oprah talks about in the, in the book is what's really important is consistent and consistent consistency and consistent love. That's true. The love is like the number one thing. Yeah. It's the number one thing. And so when we're talking about sort of the everyday anxiety of a young mother, being unsure, making those difficult decisions, going back to work, of course, those decisions are going to form your children. They are. But I think what we're talking about, and so I'm trying to, I'm trying to get you to, to relax in, as you absorb this, what we're really talking about is, I think what's more, um, difficult for, like, the zero to two is inconsistency, um, yeah. neglect. Neglect, right. Um, you know, we're really talking about some of those things. Now, if you have a consistent temper problem, but you love your children, is that going to have an effect on your kids? Yeah. If you're a screamer, I mean, I'm just going to say it. If you're a screamer and your house runs in a really anxious way, but you love your children, it's going to have an effect on how their yeah. brains develop. Yeah, it just it is. Will. And, and, mm-hmm. and that's the hard thing for us to take in. And I've talked about it before. I mean, my son used to say to me, I wish, and I don't think I, and I'll be honest. I mean, I'm the first one to criticize myself. I was not a consistent screamer. Right. But I was impatient and I was trying to do a lot when my kids were little. I had yeah. taken about nine or 10 months off, but then I went full tilt back into my career and I was trying to balance a lot. So was there a level of stress that was running in the house at certain points? There sure was. And so do I look back at that? I think what helped my kids in all of that was the idea of connectedness and love and consistency was very deep. Transparency was very important to me. So if 
I would get frustrated and I would burst out. I never had a problem talking about why what I did was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that was a reaction to my own childhood of not understanding what was going on around me and just wanting somebody to explain it to me. Like, why are these things happening? Why do I feel the way that I feel? And so what I took into my parenting was nothing's ever going to be perfect. If if both parents are working, there's a high level of activity that's going on. There's a high yeah. level of stress. Yeah. I just always felt like what I owed to my children was explain why I work explain why sometimes things were a little crazy, let them voice their opinion about what was going on around them. You know, we moved a couple of times in their lives. Those were extensive conversations about why this was happening, good or bad. We were very clear with them. There was never any confusion as to what was going on around them. And that was my way of reacting to my own childhood. But again, foundationally, lots of love. So for all of you mothers out there who you will, I trust me, you will have a freak out moment when you're reading this book. <laughs> Just know that like I'm deep into the book and over and over again, the doctor makes the point that love is, is, is the connector and is, is the important thing. And if that's consistent and, and we're not talking about other kinds of trauma, you're going to be fine, but it's still really important to understand how the children's brains are forming to the decisions you make. And it, at the end of chapter one, they talk about Elizabeth and this is the direct quote. When children don't feel respected by the decisions of their parents, their beliefs about how they are valued gets crushed. Yeah. Boy, and, and that's that, like generations. Ge- that's yeah. generations of children yeah. whose values, who th- who don't believe that they were valued. That's the whole like children should be seen and not heard thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, because then the, if, if children should be seen and not heard, they never feel valued by their parents because their voices never mattered. It's so funny. The, I've been thinking about this so much because my kids are so into, they always say to me, Marjorie, mom, I need to tell you something. Mom, I need to tell you something. Oh, and I've been that. thinking about how I respond to that. And I, I, I think I've, I always want to hear what they have to say. I mean, right. sometimes when you're trying to go to bed and Frankie's like, Mom, I just need to tell you one more thing. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is, this is the last thing. You know, I mean, you have right. to draw the line somewhere, but I've been thinking about how I want to respond to that because I usually respond with, okay, what do you, like, what do you want to tell me or what do you need to tell me? Okay, I'm listening. You know, that's what I say. And I've sort of thought that I want to take that like a different, a next level, which is that I need to hear what you have to say. Right. You know, something like that. Like, I want oh, I them to that. feel like their voices are important. And because they say, it's not just, I want to tell you something or I have to tell you something or mama, look at this. It's mama, I need to tell you something, which right. to me is like, mama, I need you to hear me and to see me. And they're not doing it in like a whiny way. And they do it about like, sometimes it's big things. Sometimes it's, I love you so much. And right. sometimes it's like, there's a bug over there, you know, like, right. like random things. Like, I don't but know. But you said something I think that's really important, which is they need to tell you, but you need to listen and you need to let them know that you're hearing it. And then I always want to hear what they have to say. I right. all, And I've talked about this before. I think that is the most valuable thing that I ever got from my parents, particularly from my mom. She always, she always would light up when she would see me and she would always want to hear what I have to say. Even to this day, she right. wants to hear what I have to say. And when you get that from your mother and she did not get that from her right. mother, 
that's a story for another day because some people are still living, but whatever that, but, but when you give that to your child, you give them value and you give them that inherent belief that what they think and what they say matters. And I don't think there's any greater gift that you can give to a child than that. No. And I think all of us, what's interesting is all of us have met people and it really comes through in the workplace who it's so clear that they hadn't been heard in some fundamental setting. So mm-hmm. it squishes out weird at work. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> like, why? Why are you like this here? Why yeah, are you doing yeah. this? And so a lot of this is just when you think about parenting, we talk a lot about sort of the, the, what, the, the feelings we want to create in our own nest. The importance of that is what you create in your own home, and this is so, it's such a perfunctory thing to say, but it's so important. What you create in your home has so many effects on the outside world. I mean, yeah. and, and that's the important thing. But I want to say this again, because this was, it was a profound thing for me to read. When children don't feel respected by the decisions of their parents, their beliefs about how they are valued get crushed. And so much of this book had me thinking about my own childhood my own parenting, but in many ways, it got me thinking very deeply about my father. Because when we talk about trauma, there are different levels of trauma that happen to many people. For my father, my father's father was a physician in the 30s and 40s, you know, through the Depression and then the 40s and 50s in a small town in Michigan. So my father grew up by small town standards, you know, he was one of the wealthiest kids in town. Dad was the doctor. You know, it's that it, it's a small town, so your dad's known in that town. Yeah. Well, yeah. my my father's mother died when he was five. Oh man! And she died of cancer. And so, my father remembered that distinctly. She passed away, and then it wasn't spoken of. Man. And he had a he had a nanny who was there for pretty much the majority of his life because I think his mother was sick for a year or two. So think about that. He, you know, his mother was sick probably from the time he was like three to five. So that's all, yeah, that's, and those are the memories, probably those, barely any of them. Right. And so Mrs. Longlace was his nanny who I met when she was like 95. But my grandfather had gone down to a conference in Mexico City and met my to-be grandmother, So I think my dad was maybe seven or eight at that point. I may have the ages wrong. My sisters might remember. And basically brought my grandmother home. So what they had done in Mexico City, they all of the sort of the the society women of Mexico City and their daughters hosted these American doctors. And that's how my grandfather met my grandmother. Oh, man. And so he brought her home and introduced her to my father and my father's sister, here's your new mother. Unbelievable. And that's how he got his new mother. And my grandmother luckily adored my father. I mean, forever, even I remember, because we lived in Mexico City for a summer when I was little, and I remember my my grandmother talking about Jimmy, oh, my sweet Jimmy. I mean, it was just, she adored him. But I think so many of my father's issues of disconnection and alcohol and come back to that. Yeah. And that's what the book gets into is that adaptive behavior in children becomes maladaptive behavior 
in in adult situations. Mm-hmm. And so my father's ability to adapt to having lost his mother and not not talking about it, and then suddenly another woman appears and is told this is his mother now. And then they lose Mrs. Longlace, who had been his mother. <laughs> it's like, I mean, imagine that for a young child. Adaptive behavior becomes maladaptive. And that takes us to chapter two about seeking balance, that our balance and rhythm are all developed in childhood, that the roots of health are rhythm and regulation. That's what we learn as a child. We learn stress response, formation and maintenance of relationships, and then reward and pleasure. So if you look at that just even from the trauma of my father, formation and maintenance of relationships, how messed up were his yeah, yeah, I know. In that chapter two, what was so interesting, and I love that you took this note because I took this note too, which is the brain is a meaning making machine. Yeah. And I yep. think something about that I found to be so fascinating because your brain is constantly assessing things and then creating a meaning out of it for right. you. Right. And what that is doing is it's a survival mechanism, right? So it's meant to go, like big lion, scary Push. teeth that, okay. So that the next time you encounter that your brain can make a split second decision that you go into fight or flight essentially right. from whatever it is. So, I mean, at its core, at the basis of it, it's deciding what's a threat and deciding what isn't. And so if you encounter trauma where you encounter, say you have a man in your house who is abusive towards you and you're a child your brain is going to automatically associate because it's trying to make meaning big, strong, man, scary. And there are stories in this book about dealing with children with trauma and finding out there's this story in this chapter that was so interesting about a child who so who didn't realize but had associated the smell of Old Spice yep. with being abused by his father. And the teacher that he then had later on, who wore Old Spice cologne, he was having these insane clashes with. And when Dr. Perry started to talk to him about your father and what you remember and all of these things, Old Spice was brought up. And Dr. Perry went to that teacher and said, you don't by any chance wear Old Spice, do you? And the teacher said, yes. And he said, here's what I think is going on. Switch the cologne. And the teacher switched the cologne. And that child was able to thrive in the classroom because that child's brain had associated that smell with abusive behavior and so immediately went into just like could not control himself in this classroom because at the core of his body was having this reaction to that smell that he wasn't even aware of. It's fascinating. Well, and that story gave me goosebumps because it shows you, and this is the doctor, Dr. Bruce Perry's point, is it shows you that if we don't start looking at what we would consider bad behavior, right? If we don't look at it, instead of looking at it, what's wrong with you and shifting that paradigm to what's happened to you, those children grow into maladapted adults mm-hmm. and maladapted adults have consequences for all of us. Right, right. And, and, you know, you can go to the extreme and look at the prison population and say, okay, instead of saying what's wrong with everybody in prison, what happened to everybody what in prison? What happened to everybody in prison, which is what I've been doing Every time I drive down the street and I see someone out with a sign asking for money and I've just been, and I see this a lot because I live in the city. And so I drive past 
people who are struggling every single day. Right. And I have, Marjorie, I've completely shifted my thought process to like, oh man. And there's always like been an empathy there, but I've been thinking to myself, like, what happened to you? Right. I, I was just watching something today on gun violence and one of the community activists was saying- Oh, it was on CBS. It was on Sunday morning. I watched it too. Yep. Hurt people, hurt people. And he right. said, with gun violence, hurt people, kill people. Mm-hmm. But it, going back to that that one statement of hurt people, hurt people- it goes back again to the doctor's point. And, and the reason the story that you told gave me goosebumps is because what if the doctor hadn't discovered that? Right. That poor boy is now on a trajectory of misbehavior and misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. And the older he gets, the more difficult it is going to be for anybody to want to understand what happened to you. Yeah. The greatest time for intervention for any of us is with children because people can look at you and go, oh, there's hope. You know, if you're five years old and you're misbehaving, there's still hope. We give up on people as they get older. Yeah. And I think that that's what was so stunning about that story oh. is his intervention literally changed the course, understanding that Old Spice was the foundation for this kid's trigger and then for the trauma and then for his misbehavior changed the course of that child's life. It is not an understatement. It changed the course of his life. He and that teacher ended up having a very good relationship. But it goes back to, again, and this is why this book is so mind-blowing to me, is this idea of how our brains develop and how we respond to things. And the doctor and Oprah continually make the point that when you're raised in a chaotic household, your brain has to cope and it figures out a way to come through it. But it's not healthy. And so I want to read another quote to you because this is, it it came after that idea. And it's funny, we both really sort of timed with this idea of the brain is a meaning making machine Mm because it makes you really think about what are, what are the things that my child are taking in? So this quote says, what happened to you? You have to look back to the developmental trauma. Core regulatory networks are sensitized. So we go back to those core regulatory networks our stress response, formation and maintenance of relationships, and reward and pleasure. So think about those three things. So core regulatory networks are sensitized. If you grew up in a household characterized by unpredictability, chaos, and ongoing threat, you will very likely end up with an altered stress response system. This is especially true if the abuse, chaos, or exposure to violence took place in the home, and the very adults who were supposed to be nurturing and protecting you were the source of the pain, the chaos, the fear, or the abuse. Even in the absence of major a major traumatic event, unpredictable stress and lack of control that goes with it are enough to make our stress response system sensitized overactive and overly active reactive, creating the internal storm. And here's the most important parts. Human, or most important part, humans are emotionally contagious. A parent's internal storm becomes the home's internal storm. Yeah, there you go. Right there. And it goes back to the saying that I think people laugh about is happy wife, happy life. And I always hated when people would say that because I think nobody in a household should be able to control the emotional state of the household. So if you say happy wife, happy life, turn that around and think about what you're really saying. It's, it shouldn't work that way. Nobody should control that 
the unless you're controlling it together to be a really positive experience. And so for me, I mean, you can tell I'm totally hyped up on this book, but <laughs> I remember we interviewed a doctor when my husband and I were doing the morning show and they talked about, he was talking about chaos and I, mom, I love you. We don't have to retread my life. I love you. I grew up in a chaotic household. Mm-hmm. And so when I was first married, things would be going so smoothly and I would feel unsettled. Yeah. Because that wasn't your norm. It didn't feel like home. Yeah. And so I would start a fight. Oh gosh. To get yeah. me back into chaos. Yeah. Because that was a more familiar feeling for me. Mm-hmm. And we interviewed, like, as I started to say, we interviewed this therapist who had named that. And it was like such a revelation for me of like, I had since stopped doing it because I interviewed this doctor in my 40s. I had since stopped doing it, but I did that through therapy and through a good husband and through having children and wanting a peaceful home. I had I had sort of media, I had sort of tamped down that problem. I wouldn't say I'd fixed it 100%, but I definitely tamped it down and had a much more heightened awareness of the kind of household I wanted. But how crazy is that? That I was opting for chaos. But when you read this book, that's how my brain had been formed. That's the pathway that had been formed. Yeah. When you read the book, you realize that that's not crazy at all, Marjorie, that that was what happened to you. And so that was how you were formed. And only by recognizing that can you start to, I think, move forward and heal and overcome and create the life that you want and create the home that you want. But the reality is that I mean, parents are responsible for the emotional tone of the home. It's so, I was just talking with a friend the other day who started to tell me about her daughter who was struggling with some anxiety going back to school. And she's been struggling with significant anxiety, the friend. Right. And, and through this sort of revelation in our conversation, and she was like, I was looking for a therapist for my daughter and all of this stuff. And, but as soon as my friend started to deal more with her anxiety, her daughter's anxiety has magically gone away. Yeah. It's really, I mean, and I, and I know that that pressure is big and I know Marjorie, I hear what you're saying when you say that no one should be responsible for the mood of the home. But I go back to the words of my homeopath who says that the mother in, in a, in, in most households, you know, I mean, obviously there are different structures of families, right? but in many households, the mother is the, uh, is the power strip that everybody else plugs into. Okay. Well, fair enough. And I think when I say that, what I mean is, I think I mean it in the, um, more from the negative side than the positive side. Yeah. Yeah. What I mean is I think a lot of, I think it's easy as a woman to think, I, I, I guess I was really just responding to that that saying of a happy wife, happy life. Yeah. Is but I, don't, I think that comes, I get that. And it's an annoying saying. Yeah. It is yeah. annoying. It's very annoying. But at the same time, it is, I don't know, there is something about a mother energy. There is no one else in the world that the baby comes from and comes out of and is so attached to. Yeah, It's funny because my kids will say like, why does Heathy always want to be by you? Why right. does Heathy always want you? Like when you come in, he always, he'll be fine in a room. By other, by everybody else. Like, I guarantee you, he's fine right now with Jay and the kids right now. And when I walk downstairs, 
he's going to ha, 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 reach for me, grab for me. Right. And I say to them, because I was his home. Right. Like I was his right. home. He was in my belly tummy and yeah. he was inside of me for just as long as he's been outside. And so when he <laughs> sees me, he's at home and that's how all, that's how babies are. Like there, there is this, there is this instinct. And so I just think like the trauma of losing a mother should never be understated right? and should and, be worked through and talked about and, and, and figured out because it is such an important thing. I actually think we're talking about two different things. Yeah. Because I think when you talk about, I remember when you talked about once your homeopath talking about how the yeah. mother is the power strip. And I 100% agree with that. Yeah. I, so in the, in sort of the, because of the ways most families fall, the, the initial, much of the nurturing, much of the day-to-day task assigning, much of that still tends to fall to the mother. So I 100% right. agree with that. I think the point I was trying to make Not is, fair, but it's true. But okay, it's true. <laughs> and, and there's a beauty in that. And I think you're yeah. exactly right. I mean, I think my relationship with my sons is not better or worse than the relationship that my husband has with our sons, but it is decidedly different. We nurture mm-hmm. differently. Um, and so- Yes to everything you're saying. I think what I'm talking about in terms of when they make the point in the book, a parent's internal storm becomes the home's internal storm. I think I could say it better that hold precious your effect on your family. Yes. That's what I mean more is no one person gets to decide the state of the family. Yeah. And so I think I'm meaning it sort of in the pejorative sense of like, anger and tempers and discomfort and discontent that you don't get to determine what that family dynamic should look like in mm-hmm. in in that sense so it's those two ideas have to sort of exist in the same place but i think yeah. i'm speaking more from the negative side of it and you're sort of sort of speaking to it from the positive side of it but but what i know to be true is the responsibility of a mother and father to bring their literally to bring their best to the nest is so validated mm-hmm. in this book about mm-hmm. what that means when you do that and what you will provide for your children when you bring a sense of I'm going to listen to what my children need to tell me. As you said earlier, I'm going to hear them. I'm not going to neglect them. I'm going to be consistent for them. I'm going to make this a. I'm going to make this a peaceful place, and not a storm. So, I mean, really, when you think about how many times we create a storm within our home, and then our children have to go out into the storm, yeah. don't do that to them. Right. So, right. Yeah. I don't know. You're totally we, right. Which is interesting that you talk about that though, and that's where when we've been talking about like the pain point, we've talked about that in previous podcasts. Now, this doesn't have to do with the book, but this is what we've been doing in our house: is looking at. What's the most difficult part of our day that then leads to other stressful situations? And how can we eliminate that pain point? You know, I'm looking ahead to this week where we've got Bernie going back to school and all of this. And and I've got the fair and I've got two shows to do during the fair. I have to do an early show and a late show. I've got huge days. And Jay is going to be completely like he's got to take control of the kids, but it's a lot to get all three out the door that early. You know, it's just a lot. And right. so what I did is I was looking ahead and going, how do I want this to be? Like, I want Bernie to start her first week of school feeling like 
everyone like people are focused on her and she is being sent off starting this year really great because right. there are challenges to this year. Yeah. And and so I've got grandparents coming in to take the little boys to daycare so that Jay can fully just focus on getting her to school because I won't be there. And and I think recognizing like how do I want my home to be and then starting to go, wait a second, like, this is where I need the help. Like, I don't need help for a babysitter for a date night this week. I need help here. Right. So that we can, so that we can have that, do what we can to have things smooth sailing. I think the theme as we move into chapter three of this book is how we are loved, which is the title of the chapter. Does this book takes you on highs and lows? And this one at least, made me feel probably the most hopeful as I have going, you know, reading this so far, which is that how you were loved makes all the difference. How you were or were not loved is like the fundamental core that, that transcends it, it, your poverty level, your anything, any struggle that can come up, the love can make or break you. And I think what we have gotten through chapters one and two, and I think we need to pick up the next time we talk about this on chapter three, because we've already been talking for close to 40 I know, minutes. I know. We busted um, through our time, and I got to get downstairs to that Heathcliff. He's going to go, mama, mama, mama. And, and so I think we just save that. And I just want to put sort of one more thought in everybody's head. And at the end of chapter two, because I think for people who are parenting, you know, we talk a lot about little kids on the podcast. For people who are parenting tweens, the end of chapter two was the most important thing because they talk about addiction. And again, yeah. this is where I go back to empathy for my father and his own problems with alcoholism. And they talk about addiction being so complex and that so many people who have addictions to whatever, it could be food, it could be alcohol, it could be, you know, you name it are addicted because of developmental trauma and they're self-medicating. This is not an aha moment for me. I mean, I think a lot of us know that a lot of addiction comes from self-medication. Yeah. But what he said, and I think this, this does lead into chapter three, is that it's connectedness that rewards us. And this goes back again to making sure that you are connected, that your children feel connected to you. And what you just said about Bernie and making sure that she understands at this scary moment in her life, she is connected. Mm -hmm. She is safe. There Mm -hmm. is a net there. She's not going into this unknown by herself. All attention is being paid. That as silly as it might seem to think about though, this week could foundationally set the tone for some day when she's at a party and she's 16 and somebody's offering her something that she should not take, she will think about that love in that vague sense of, I'm connected to my mother and my father and my grandparents and my brothers. This doesn't feel right to me. I am Mm -hmm. loved. And so those are important decisions you're making, really important decisions. So I think it's super cool. Connecting All right. I can't wait key. to continue. I know. We're going to continue the conversation. So now we've turned this into apparently a four-part podcast. So get ready for it, guys. We're That's we're here. Right. But get on board with us. Um, <laughs> you know, you can listen. I We do want to recommend again. I really am enjoying listening to the book on Audible. I'm all about reading real books, too. But listening to the book on Audible, because you hear Dr. Bruce Perry, you hear Oprah, and you get to hear clips from her show, which were stories from individuals that really fundamentally impacted how she looked at child trauma and why 
she wanted to talk about this. So I think I think it is worth a listen and we'll talk more about it in future episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review at Apple Podcasts. Okay, from Stacy Richter today, she wrote, A Path to Perspective. Elizabeth and Marjorie, thank you for helping me solve all of the problems that I never realized I had. A <laughs> story of our lives. Exactly. All <laughs> joking aside, this is a treasure of a podcast. Your unique Aww. perspectives, empowering topics, and challenge of looking at life from a different perspective is something that I take far beyond each podcast. A fan of my talk and dedicated Twin Cities Live viewer, I giggle out loud every time I hear you two laugh. No need to be Twin Cities based to appreciate this priceless duel. Stacy, oh thank gosh. you so much. We so appreciate the the kind words. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Best of the Nest or go to bestofthenest.com to subscribe to our newsletter. We are the podcast that brings you home. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.